I am Alon Benmir, and welcome to this episode of On the Issues. My guest today is Ambassador Warren Clark, former Executive Director of the Churches for Middle East Peace. You can find his full bio on the page for this episode. <laughs> I, 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 I think you're terrific. I always enjoy talking to you, Alon. Uh, the, the pleasure is mine. Thank you so much again for taking the time. So, so go ahead, please. I don't mean to interrupt you about well, what you're doing today. Well, j just what I, I started to say, um, you talked about the enormous sea change in our, in our politics, the, 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 the gulf in the middle between these two, the, the polarization, the growing polarization between the parties, which, which unfortunately is now being reflected too in, in, in foreign policy. And um, so many people that I know were surprised by the outcome of the election last November, uh, a year ago. Uh, of course. And um, uh, so uh, I've asked myself, uh, how come we're surprised? So uh, it, it's very interesting how our politics have changed uh, to have this, um, or to, to increase our awareness of this enormous gulf in the middle uh, between the two uh, political extremes um, in the country. And um, I think there are historical reasons for that, economic reasons. Um, and it's not all obvious, but clearly we've, we've lost the kind of consensus, even for foreign policy. Foreign policy used to be a, a more or less consensus kind of approach, and we've lost that. And so I'm trying to find out or trying to read or trying to understand or help other people understand why, why we've ended up in this very awkward uh, and so, so, so what's, what, what's your take? I mean, just, just so that um, uh, while I was, like so many millions, shocked, when he was elected, and uh, I'm always struggled with the with the one issue, and that is, we did I, I didn't see we didn't see how he managed and by what means he made that appeal to his base, so-called base, and was able to capitalize on it without much being talked about it before That's throughout, right. throughout That's the right. process, That's right. throughout the, the campaign. That's right. This is really it's a big puzzlement yeah. for yeah. me. Maybe, Please, yeah. enlighten Maybe me. Maybe this is the genius of, 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 of Trump. Is he able to, to identify uh, issues uh, that really touched people uh, and, and, and motivated And coming people. from so-called billionaire, yes. appealing to the poor and the yes. despondent yes. and the despair. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, I guess part of the clue, the, the, I'm no expert in this area at all, but part of the understanding of Trump is that he's not from the establishment in New York. Not. He's yeah. from Queens. He's from yeah. uh, the, the outside. Um, and so um, he doesn't have all of that uh, Wall Street uh, kind of um, uh, background uh, on, on these issues. So he, he identifies much more quickly uh, with people um, uh, who come from uh, modest backgrounds, um, uh, the, the so-called white workers, yeah. uh, electricians, carpenters, uh, plumbers, um, uh, uh, technical work workers of various kinds, uh, many of whom do not have a university um, uh, degree. Um, and uh, they have felt uh, ignored and left out of the political process uh, for a long time. Everybody points to the fact that uh, wages have been stagnant for almost 30 years now for, for this group. Um, and that the government programs, the, the appearance of government programs, uh, Medicaid, for example, helps the lower, lowest maybe 30% of the income distribution. But then you've got the next 50% of the income distribution that, hasn't, that doesn't benefit from yeah. these Medicaid and other programs mm -hmm. for, for, mm -hmm. the, for the poor. 
So um, someone mentioned the other day that part of the genius of, talking about medical uh, issues, part of the genius of, of Franklin Roosevelt was that he made Social Security apply to everybody. Right, right. Uh, but as soon as you put on a means test, right. uh, such as Medicaid, uh, then some people are going to benefit and some people are not. And uh, if you're just over the line, uh, earning uh, an income of uh, $45,000 or something, and you, you get no benefit from, from Medicaid, you're not happy. Yeah. I mean, this is what, what, what uh, Senator Sanders has been saying about health care. Yeah. That is the only way to do it. I mean, I happen to agree. Uh, I lived in England for a while, and, and it's not a perfect system in terms of national health care, but it works. Yeah. Yes, you can, you're late, it takes you sometimes two, three weeks before you can get an appointment, especially for something serious. And if it's urgent, 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 you could end up going to a private doctor if uh -huh. you must uh -huh. and have the means. Uh -huh. But you also know you are safe. You have a national healthcare system that is functioning, that is working. And, and uh, why is it, I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you looked into that. Why, why is it, why is it that we are not thinking in those terms? Republicans are not thinking in those terms. Uh -huh. I think Democrats will be more inclined. Yes. To go the national healthcare yes, system. Yes, yes. Why, why do you think that? Well, you know, uh, uh, again, I'm no expert in, in this, but you can go kind of deep into the American character yeah. about our history has given us uh, certain values. I mean, people talk about um, self-reliance. Uh, they yeah. talk about um, the uh, the influence of the frontier on the American mentality. Yes. Where yeah. you were supposed to be independent. Right. You were supposed to be self-sufficient. Uh, you went out and sort of uh, fought for your land from from the Native Americans. Um, and um, so uh, it's interesting. I lived in Canada for several years. In Canada, the government are the good guys. The government yeah, yeah. brings you services and security. Right. When when the West, Western Canada was, was settled, the, the Royal Canadian Modern Police went first, and they established law and order, and then the settlers came, then the farmers came, and the, the police were there to protect them. In the West, in the American experience, of course, after the Civil yeah, War, was the reverse. Yeah, there was no right. law and order. Yes, so your gun was, was... Was your law. Was your law. Yeah. Um, yeah and yeah. it was another, uh, you know, 10 or 20 years before, you know, there was a courthouse and a, and, a, and a legal system that you could have any faith in. Yeah. So yeah. it's a different kind of tradition. Culture, mentality. Yeah, different kind of mentality. But this is, this is really, I mean, this 2017 was uh, an eye-opener in yeah. so many different ways. Yeah. You know, I've been concentrating largely on the Middle East in terms of my thinking, writing, preaching, uh, the gospel of, what, of peace and, and security. But I couldn't help it. As a result of this election, I started to tackle, uh, you know, our, our domestic problem, yes. Being, yes. given that what yes. uh, Trump is doing. I, incidentally, I, I I still have hard time to say President Trump. So, <laughs> <laughs> I I really mean it. I could not use the word president before his name. You know, in our in our church, <laughs> we have a time in our church service when we we offer prayers uh -huh. for people who are sick and so forth. We also offer prayers for those in authority, uh, for yeah. the government, yeah. and for the President of the United States. Really? And when the first time that happened, after the election, no, after the inauguration, the person saying it burst into tears. 
To say she couldn't bring herself to say President Trump. Yes, was very difficult. So that shows how how to me it shows how kind of out of touch we are with here in in this blue bubble of Washington. How out of touch we are with with all those red states and all those those people in other parts of the country. Which was amazing. Well, whoever was able to work with him and help him to identify specifically the three states, the key where the focus was there, when in fact Hillary Clinton just took it for granted that Pennsylvania is going to go with her, so she could seal seal the the election. It is is really amazing. To me, this is an amazing lesson of American uh, domestic politics, which is really very, very interesting. You know, when you you watch... um, Especially CNN, not that the CNN is the source of the truth, uh, the, the gospel. But you have sometimes very interesting um, guest who supporter of of of, uh, of Trump, and to me it is absolutely puzzling that they try to justify everything, but none. They are learned, very able. Some of them occupied very important positions in various Republican government, administration, but they cannot find a fault in whatever he is doing and does. Yes, they're very defensive. We, we, we that, we are that, how, how was he able, I'm not talking now about the old, those who are uneducated, uh, disenchanted, unhappy, they've been, did, you know, been uh, le- left to themselves. But these people are, no, they know. They understand. Yes. They've been congressmen, yes. senators, oh, all kind of people. And they put it with a straight face. They defend every single step, every single word he is saying. Yes, yes. How is it how is it possible? I mean to what extent this biases has taken such yes. deep roots in yes. such a short period of time? Yes. It, well yes, and related to that I think is that uh, if he says something outrageous or he does something outrageous his base doesn't seem to be greatly affected because they think, well, you know, okay, it's embarrassing that he did this or he, he said that, but that um, he's doing the right thing of trying to disrupt uh, Washington, of trying to change uh, the way the government works, um, and specific things like tax reform and immigration. Um, are he's, he's moving in the direction they want him to move in, and so they're willing to tolerate yeah. a, a lot of kind of... A, Noise and static that seems very to the rest of it seems to distract uh, very much from. I mean, for them, these lies and in 24 hours a day, the the the, the New York Times or the Washington Post uh, actually identified that on the average he lies three four times a day from the time he came to office. Can you imagine? That is like 1,200 times he lied. (laughs) I think his supporters, it doesn't bother people. It doesn't bother his supporters because, well, you know, um, he often says what he kind of wishes was the case instead of what is the case. But again, uh, that's kind of uh, on the surface. It doesn't seem to bother people uh, because they think he's he's moving in in the right direction. So... um, uh, you know, it'll be very, very interesting to see what happens uh, this year. I think this is going to be an extremely interesting political year. Absolutely. Uh, you know, apart from the whole Russian investigation question, the FBI right now uh, problem, um, it, you know, so many women, for example, have seemed to be mobilized. Uh, 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 
because of, of, of the president. And, uh, of course, sadly, a lot of women did not vote in, in the last election. In, I think they probably will be more inclined. They'll be much more inclined more to, vote. To, to vote. And we saw that uh, in, yeah. in some of the by-elections yeah. uh, in Alabama and yeah. other places. Yeah. And um, uh, more women are now being urged to run for office. Run for offices, yes. So I, I think there's going to be a counter-reaction. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of it will be from, from, uh, from women. Yeah, 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 and I think I think probably the Democrats also are going to be more energized this yeah. time around. Oh, definitely. I mean, I mean, I mean uh, mathematically speaking, it's entirely it's possible yeah. uh, for for the Democrat to to recapture the right. the House as well as right. the Senate. Right. I mean, uh, that will be something to to see. I think right. you're right. 2018 is going to be, but it's going to be even more than just that. Is going to demonstrate to what extent the American public is the American public is moved, in which direction is this moved? Right. What is moving? Right. The, the, I mean, the economy continues most likely to flourish. Yes. Now you'll take credit for that. So everybody, yes, he'll take. He's already taken credit for it. So everybody's saying it's the economy is stupid. The economy is the economy. Well, the economy is going to be fine. With that still be the main force that is traditionally going, it has been it traditionally has been. the economy has been the key it, I, right. absolutely it's been yes. the, the key That's will right. that now remain the main force yeah. given the fact that everything else is not yeah. they don't like yeah. uh, and I, that that is to me the most important thing to watch yeah. for right. not to speak of course of our foreign policy our that is his foreign policy right. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is uh, to me it's even more alarming right than anything else that's happening. Right. Well, on the subject that, that you and I uh, are so interested in and have followed for a long time, namely the, the, the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, it's a, very, it's a very interesting example to see how he operates and to try to read his mind uh, as to how he's approaching it. And, um, you know, I, I think, as most people have thought in the beginning, uh, that, uh, well, this conflict seems to be uh, intractable, and um, maybe, you know, a person like this who's coming from the outside with fresh views doesn't seem likely, but maybe it's possible something will really happen. And um, I think we've seen that's not, <laughs> not, not, not the case. Unfortunately, he Unfortunately. worse in my view. Um, uh, and then, of course, he, he gave some of the assignment to his son-in-law, who also was, I'm sure, a fine person, but had no experience um, in this issue. Uh, and you can, I worked years ago, I worked for Jean Kirkpatrick at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations. Jean was a wonderful person. She was an academic intellectual, but she had no experience in government. Yeah. She didn't know yeah. how the State Department worked and yeah. how bureaucrats work and how, you know, when you're sending a message, you, you need to consult with a bunch of people to make sure that, you know, nobody's going to contradict you. But in time, she kind of learned that, uh, okay, this is how you, how you, how you do it. And I, the president <laughs> doesn't seem to have learned much about how to build consensus or whether he should build consensus uh, on, on, on given issues. Um, and um, uh, for example, um, he also, he's very, I think the president in some ways is Experiencing his approach, he often, or maybe almost always, tries to leave himself an exit, a way out. 
Um, and on the, on, on the conflict uh, between Israel and the Palestinians, especially on the Jerusalem issue, um, you know, his, his uh, initial statement was, well, on, on moving the embassy, well, we're going to move the embassy to Jerusalem, but we're not taking any position about the, the final boundaries of the municipal boundaries of Jerusalem uh, or, or the boundaries for, for, for the Palestinians. Well, um, of course, his statement of, that he would move the embassy changed so much uh, because that had been one of the few possible incentives, one of the few for, for the Israelis to come to an agreement, one exactly. of the few cards exactly. the Palestinians had. And he exactly. just threw that card away. He gave it away without demanding anything in return from Netanyahu, which is a sad, sad day. I mean, this is one... This is such a big thing for Israel. Yeah, yeah. Such a big thing. He could have gotten significant yeah. concessions. I mean, everybody knows de facto West yeah. Jerusalem is the yeah. capital. Yeah. That's yeah. where the prime yeah. minister's office is. That's where the Knesset is. We all know that. Yeah. But we also know that, you know, if there, any, if there ever is going to be an agreement uh, between the Palestinians and Israel, there's got to be something motivating the, the Israelis to come to the table. Certainly, you have this enormous asymmetry with a very prosperous, strong, strongly allied uh, Israel, uh, with with a very poor uh, a Palestinian uh, state, who uh, and the, the Israelis are are enjoying a, a good good prosperity for the most part, uh, and and the the Palestinians are, are not. So that uh, apart from all the the limitations on their on their on their livelihood of, of travel restrictions and, and many other kind of restrictions. So that the Palestinians have very strong motives to come to an agreement uh, to, to relieve these pressures, uh, whereas the, the Israelis have very little motivating them, I think, to, to come to an agreement. Yeah, they, they were like exactly what you said, you know, the fact that Israel is so prosperous, so powerful, uh, you know, economically powerful, socially, uh, technologically, in just about every single field. The economy is, is, is a thriving. So they have their no incentive to change the status quo. What is also interesting is that having been able to achieve this level of success while the continuing threat, so to speak, going back 70 years from the day, from the day of inception. So for them actually maintaining a certain level of threat or sense of insecurity is strong motivation for all Israelis to rally around the cause. That is, we cannot trust the Palestinians. We have to continue to be remain vigilant, very strong, because and then, having been able to develop this system, the apparatus, both military, uh, technologically as well as in terms of intelligence, to be able to control the Palestinians, to control the specifically violent resistance. There's some violence, but there's nothing. More Israelis people are killed on the highway every single day than what the Palestinians are killing Israelis on the whole year. So they have created a situation where they can manage. The management of the crisis become the the norm now. That is that is the scary situation. In the interim, what's happening? The continuing expansion of the settlement now practically with no breaks. Nobody is telling them anymore. I think. Uh, new realities is creating, and the two-state solution becoming very is, is rapidly vanishing, disappearing. 
and from the Israeli perspective, it's a success story. Look what we're doing. We don't want a Palestinian state in the West Bank. It's not going to happen because we created new facts on the ground. On the, on the other hand, I don't know how many Israelis, including the government, are tell, asking themselves the question, okay, we're succeeding now, we're controlling the situation, where are we going to be 10 years down the line? Mm -hmm. And there is no answer that I could find anywhere in Israel. Mm -hmm. Do you know where you're going to be 10 years down the line? And there's a great deal of wishful thinking, you know. Palestinians will leave because yes. they're putting a pressure, yes. but they don't understand that this is not simply not going to happen. No. And then, out of despair, and, and when you have nothing left to lose, it's going to, in my view, it's going to explode. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Even though tens of thousands of Palestinians can get killed in the process, but for them it's going to be a small price to pay if they can, because once there is this kind of eruption, they will no longer go back to the status quo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They would want a permanent, definitive end to the conflict. Mm -hmm. that's a, I mean, that's that's one end of it. And the second end from my perspective... Excuse me, when you say an end of the conflict, are you talking about some form of a Palestinian for, state? They, they will demand a solution, yes, a right. permanent solution. Yeah. What kind of uh, contour to this, yeah. can it be the contour of the yeah. solution? One can tell, cannot tell, but there's no question they're going to be demanding a Palestinian state. Right. I mean, that's, that is one thing. The other problem is that they themselves have been contributing to the problem, of, of, to their own problem, by sticking to their old, old, old narrative, going back now 50 years, at least since, the, since 1967. They have never understood that you cannot simply resist you have to come up with new ideas. Resistance is a political occasion that's erupting into becoming violent resistance. It has never really worked with the Israelis because only galvanize the Israelis to oppose it and get better at it. And then you have Hamas, on the other hand, who constantly continue to threaten Israel, continue to demand all of Palestine, and a part of it also playing into the hand of the Israelis. So when I speak to the Palestinians, I tell them, you know, you are making a terrible mistake. You are not the victim, yes. You are the one who's been displaced, yes. But you have to also understand, you cannot defeat Israel. Your resistance, be that sometimes peaceful, political, and or violence, did not work. You've got to change your strategy. You know, renounce violence. I mean, for Hamas, for Hamas still today, they refuse to renounce violence. And then they're playing into the hands of Netanyahu and his bunch. And when you have an American administration that see no wrong, as far as Israel goes, simply no wrong. Uh, successive American administration from day one basically supported Israel. Some put a little bit more pressure than the other. The, great, the biggest pressure came from President um, Obama for a while to force, you know, to hold the expansion of the settlement. But he ended up giving Israel $38 billion in military aid over 10 years. Uh -huh. So there was no, never, in the United States has taken a single coercive, a single measure to force the Israeli hands, when in fact it's the only country, the only country, that can exact any kind of concession from Israel. And the Israelis know that, and the Israelis sell tell us, as long America for us is number one, two, three, four, and five, and that's what matters to us the most. 
knowing also that it's not, just, it's not going to put that kind of pressure in order to get the, any kind of concession. That is, it. so I see, as I see it now, America, we has here have contributed to the impasse just as much mm -hmm. as the Israelis and the Palestinians have contributed to it. There was a period, I think, uh, in the early 90s, after the first Gulf War and the collapse of the Soviet Union, when the United States looked as though it was the sole power in the mm -hmm. world. And uh, Secretary of State uh, Baker yeah. uh, organized the conference in, in, uh, in Madrid. Right. That led to, uh, ultimately, to, to the Oslo Accords. And um, uh, that actually moved the whole process forward quite a bit. Uh, and uh, we, we, we recognized the, the PLO. And you may remember that um, the, the, the PLO and Arafat signed a letter uh, with exchange with Rabin in the White House lawn, which explicitly uh, not only recognized Israel, oh, yes. but recognized yeah. Israel's right to exist. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's really very, I think, insidious when some years later Netanyahu comes up with the idea, well, they must recognize as Israel a Jewish, as a Jewish state. A Jewish state yeah. So yeah. he never mentions the fact that they already have recognized Israel, right. not only recognized Israel, but its right to exist. Yeah. And if you start saying, well, uh, you recognize Israel as a Jewish state, what does that mean for the non-Jewish population? Mm -hmm. What does that mean for, for civil rights, for human rights? That's never, never made clear. And it certainly looks as though it could lay uh, the groundwork for a long-term uh, state where you have two sets of laws for two sets of people. Oh, which is already exists. Which already exists. Yeah, I mean, and it would simply itself. be giving legitimacy to, yeah. to that system, yeah. system that, that already exists. It we don't, we don't want to use the A word, but, you yeah. know. It's, it's no, but the truth direction. of the matter is Israelis, Israeli, Palestinian Israelis are discriminated against. There's no, no, I mean, everybody knows that. And as far as the West Bank is concerned, there are two systems, two separate laws. One is applicable to the settlers and one for the Palestinians. And so, you know, you don't want to use the word apartheid, but it's a de facto. It's a de facto apartheid. It's becoming at least, now I think it's becoming ever so more closely to be identified. I, I think we apartheid. also have to recognize that uh, the PLO, uh, you know, and the Palestinian state really uh, went a long way. Uh, in the early 2000s, uh, with it after, after the death of Arafat, uh, that the, the Palestinian Authority, at the insistence of, of, of George W. Bush, uh, cooperated uh, with the United States and with Israel on security in the West Bank. Uh, they, uh, he, uh, Abbas uh, has said he's against uh, violence. And uh, during, you, you, during the, the three uh, Gaza wars, uh, in 08, 12, and, and 14, the West Bank was quiet, and that's because they were being sat on, not only by the Israelis, uh, but by, by, the by, by the Palestinians themselves. themselves. Absolutely. So that yeah. um, I think the Palestinians can say they have, in good faith, cooperated a great deal uh, with the United States and Israel, especially on, on security uh, matters. Uh, and of course, they haven't, they've got nothing in return. And Abbas puts Abbas in an extremely difficult position because he can say, look, we're cooperating on security. Um, uh, Israeli security people are all over the West Bank. But in return, you know, we're going to make progress towards a Palestinian state. And he, he has not been able to, to deliver that. Yeah, you know, the Israeli argument about that, uh, and you hear it all the time, 
And that is what happened in 2000, the second intifada. You see, for the Israelis, the second intifada, and I'm not justifying it, you know, you know my position, but for the Israelis, the second intifada was nothing short of a major turning point. That is, if there was any trust left with the Palestinians, that trust it totally evaporated. And, and it killed the peace movement in Israel. Yeah, it killed the, the peace movement. So when you have 130 terrorist activity took place in 2000 alone, over 1,000 Israelis got killed in these terrorist activities, it really changed, it, it destroyed the peace movement, exactly what you said, and it, and it instilled serious doubt and distrust of the Palestinians. And they have not recovered from that to this day. And that is something. When I talked to the Palestinians, I said to them, you've got to understand the Israeli mindset. You've got to understand the mentality. The occupation is not is not acceptable. It's unjustifiable. I'm totally against it. But their action are making things considerably worse. If you made a mistake in 2000, acknowledge it. Say it was a mistake. We made a mistake, but we don't want to make the same mistake again. You know, once it is acknowledged, you disarm, you disarm the the the, the extremists on and in Israel who continue to say. We gave them, we did this. You remember to, before 2000, the relationship were actually, after the Oslo Accord, Israelis and Palestinians been going back and forth, the West Bank, Israelis go to the West Bank, they gamble, they buy, they shop, and come back to, to Israel. Was, this, is, this is how coexistence can look like. Jerusalem in the 80s were incredibly peaceful. But that's what I'm saying is what happened is that the, the mistake each party has taken been compounded and it created a such deadlock right now that it is impossible to unravel. Then comes Mr. And it's been impossible for either side to recognize the narrative of the other. Exactly. Um, exactly. And and then comes comes uh, Trump, and and he adds another Majina. This is a guy who said, oh, "I can resolve this. You know, this is going to be the deal of the century." Okay, if you are resolved to deal with the century, okay, what is the kind of approaches, strategy you're going to take to be able to bridge the gap if you know anything about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? So he goes with Jerusalem. So we let us remove the question of Jerusalem off the table. Uh, and that is going to be step one. And then he freezes, because the Palestinians refuse now to resume negotiation, he freezes the assistant, the financial assistant of the Palestinians which is even more outrageous. And he, you know, this is the sad, sad commentary, expecting the Palestinians to crawl to, uh, to get the money. You know, uh, uh, Arafat and, uh, and the PA do have a political constituency. There were elections a long time ago. Yeah. And uh, they have to, uh, to a degree, uh, reflect uh, public opinion uh, in, among Palestinians in the West Bank. And of course, there was there was terrible outrage uh, about uh, the announcement of, of moving yeah, the embassy yeah. because it seemed to them that that was uh, the end of any role of the United States as 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 a mediator. So, I think the United States is is indispensable. Uh, it's going to be absolutely necessary if there's anything's going to happen. Uh, it may be necessary, but not sufficient uh, to make things happen. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think the the Palestinians can also say to themselves that there is no point in, in, in sitting down and negotiating anything now. That is, 
uh, as you say, the, 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 the distrust on both sides is, is, is very strong. Uh, but beyond that, uh, you know, the, the, the Prime Minister of Israel ran against the Oslo Accords in the oh, mid-1990s. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And in the last election, the night before the last election, he said, there's not going to be a Palestinian state while I'm Prime Minister. Exactly. Um, exactly. So, um, uh, you, you know, um, what, what is the point of sitting down and negotiating uh, the idea of a Palestinian state with someone who, who has said that this is no, not going to happen? No, not under his watch. Any question? But in the same token, you know, I also feel strongly that not just Israeli government has to be a different one to be able to negotiate, but you also need a fresh faces, fresh individual, uh, a Palestinian with courage, with uh, with vision. Who and there seems wedded. to be no no nobody coming no coming up. Yeah, right. somebody we need someone who's not wedded to the past, somebody who's exempted exempt himself from. Okay, what was was. We have a different, we have to look at the situation somewhat differently. And there is no one in on the horizon. The one who could do that is an Israeli jail, which is really most, most unfortunate. I'm talking about Marwan Baruch. Yes, of course. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think to myself, what has changed since we've been talking about it 20 years ago? <laughs> we can, can, we're only adding another layer of problems and difficulties. Right. And, and the, the, the problem with delaying it right now, not that resumption of the negotiation is going to produce anything, uh, continues Israeli entrenchment. <coughs> yeah, in and the you know, there was, a, there was a, I don't know how much credibility given to it, but there was a, a leak, I guess, from uh, Saab Erekat about the purported uh, Trump plan. Uh, and uh, the, the administration immediately said, oh, well, that, that's not our final version of the plan. But they had said they were coming up with a plan. And the, the, the terms that were leaked, you know, would never be accepted, couldn't possibly be accepted by anybody with any political credibility with, with, with the Palestinians. I mean, in, in, 90, uh, in, in 2009, uh, the two sides were rather close in, in a number of areas. Uh, and uh, apparently, Ulmert um, was offering uh, six to, to, to hold on to only 6%. Uh, and uh, Abbas had, had offered uh, 2%. Yeah. And, you know, the idea was, well, maybe there's a compromise in the middle. Well, this talked about ten, uh, Israel holding on to 10% of, of, of the West Bank. So they're going absolutely in the opposite direction. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. And, uh, you know, it's hard to believe that there could ever be a deal uh, without uh, East Jerusalem, uh, the, the Palestinian areas of East Jerusalem, being part of a Palestinian state and, and part of the Palestinian capital. And uh, the talk about, you know, the capital being in, in Abu Dis or... or uh, uh, also Silwan. Uh, well, uh, uh, very close uh, to Jerusalem. Beit Hanina, Beit Hanina, Beit Hanina, which has Hanina. also been mentioned. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's, that's really a non-starter. Uh, you know, there's really not going to be a Palestinian state unless, unless Palestinians have some part of uh, East, East Jerusalem. You see, what is, what is very interesting, the reaction, of course, they share this information with Jordan, with Saudi Arabia, with Egypt. The, the, the relatively mute reaction from the Arab state, uh -huh. which was really, uh -huh. I, 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 a year ago I would have said, no, there needed to be a major outburst. It didn't happen. And it didn't happen. And there's another area where, where um, Netanyahu is capitalizing on, and that is the closeness that is being evolving and developing between Israel and the Arab states. Right, trade and investment. And especially the Gulf. Yeah. 
yeah. and with Saudi Arabia in particular yeah. because of the common enemy. And so they see, Saudi see Israel more of an ally, uh, even closer, more, more important than even the United States. And it says, this is on the forefront. And if anyone's going to confront Iran, is that going to be more likely Israel than it's going to be the United States? That's how Saudis actually look at it. So what happened in Israel today, from as they see it, the Arab state basically put the Israeli policy in, on the back burner. Uh -huh, uh -huh. They are no longer putting any pressure on Abbas uh -huh. to make a move, to make concession, anything like this. And Israel, Netanyahu is, is, is building, is capitalizing on the shifting political winds in Israel, I mean in the Middle East, and the, and the threat that Iran presumably is, you know, is posing on, on the entire uh, entire area. So that's another, another how would that change? Uh -huh. So it's not enough for Israeli and Palestinian government to change. You're going to need to change, have other changes specifically. Any Israeli government will continue to be concerned about Iran. Uh -huh. It could be from and like Syria you know, too. You, you, Syria, you've got Hezbollah right there on the border. Has, and they have, they have that. Yeah. So changing the government is necessary, but in and of itself will not be enough. You need to resolve the question of Hezbollah, yeah. the question of, of uh, Iran support. That is what why I'm saying the conflict is becoming ever more and more intractable because of the changing geopolitical uh, conditions and geostrategic conditions in in the in the region itself. That is making the things considerably more worse, worse than they are. But, but even if you have a hypothesis of a, of a de facto alliance between Israel and the Gulf Arabs, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Egypt being, being more or less out of the game, you're still, there's still a lot of tension uh, with, with Hezbollah, with, with Syria, oh, yeah. uh, and, with, uh, and through, through them, uh, Russia, because Russia sees Syria as a, as a client state. It has for a long time. So uh, they're not they're not particularly wedded to to uh, uh, to Assad, uh, but uh, they're wedded to Syria as being a client. <laughs> they're they're a little piece of tur turf on the Mediterranean, right? And um, so um, uh, somehow that it, it's going to be hard to to come to an accommodation uh, without figuring out how to address the Syrian conundrum. I think. Yeah, I, I, you're right. I think I think there's there's Lebanon, there's of course Syria, even Iraq to some extent yeah. is going is is important to calm things down in Iraq, yeah. uh, and then you have of course Iran, who is not going to settle on anything, other than maintaining its position. I mean, um, Netanyahu just went to visit uh, Putin. Was that interesting? A couple, a couple of days ago. What was the subject matter there? Israel will not allow an Iranian base in Syria under any circumstances, and we will take action, whether Russia likes it or not. And he was pleading with, with Putin to convince Iran not to even try, because Israel will not allow it to happen. So you have now a direct issue is yes. that needs to be resolved. Yes. Iran is determined to establish permanent base. And, and Israel is determined not to allow that to happen. Uh -huh. So where is the focus going? Uh -huh. And that is suits suits the, the Saudis very, very much uh -huh. because they have their own stake in Syria. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And so they, they want to make sure that Iran does not stay in Syria as well. So that's another layer. Uh -huh. Other than the nuclear threat, uh -huh. there's the, the, the geostrategic threat. Yeah, right. 
which which concerns Israel as well as the, uh, the Saudis in particular. So you have another 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 layer to this to this conflict, and uh, of course Israelis are not sleeping well as long as Habaa uh, Hezbollah has uh, 150,000 plus rockets. And now the main concern, the second issue that's concerned Israel is the factory that Iran is built in Lebanon to build a new generation of missiles. Oh, they have a factory? Yeah, yeah. two factories. And Israel identified the location. Uh -huh. And it's, I think it will be only a question of time when you're going to see yeah. bombing of these facilities, these right. new factories, right. only when. And, but if this is going to instigate any attack by Iran, by um, uh, Hezbollah against Israel using rockets, we're talking about a massive, massive, massive uh, conflagration between right. Israel. But and if Israel. if there was progress, this is maybe this is pie in the sky. If there is progress, uh, towards an accommodation with Israel and the Palestinians, would that take pressure off? Great deal. Coming from Hezbollah. Not just Hezbollah, Iran as well. Yeah. See, it is Iran today is saying, as long as this uh, the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, they have they have the reason to talk. And but if you take that conflict if away, if you take it away, you are really usurping away from them the reason to talk. What have you got against Israel? Yeah. As a matter of fact, you start talking about the relationship between Persia and, and the Jews, which was very wonderful. old. It's an old story. Old, old story, but they, they were an excellent relationship. Yes, yes. Throughout the Under centuries. the Shah. Under the Shah, Under the Shah. yeah. Yes, yes. And going back yes. 2,000 years for yes, that matter. Yes, yes, yes. So, so that is what the Israelis just don't understand. You want to mitigate the conflict with Iran, deal with the Palestinians. You want to mitigate the conflict with Hezbollah as well, deal with the Palestinians. Absolutely. They don't get it. You and I are completely agreed on that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've agreed on anything, everything we talked about. <laughs> all right. Good. Uh, thank, thank you, you so all. much. Thank yeah, you so I think much. we had a good time. Fun. <laughs> it was fun. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.